Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor John Pearson, who's Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Duke University. His research focuses on the application of machine learning methods to the analysis of brain data and behavior. Welcome, John. Hi. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I want to start with one of your recent papers, uh, online neural connectivity estimation with noisy tube testing. Um, You say one of the primary goals of systems neuroscience is to relate the structure of neural circuits to their function. Yet patterns of connectivity are difficult to establish when recording from large populations in behaving organisms. Many previous approaches have attempted to estimate functional connectivity between neurons using statistical modeling of observational data. But you say, but these approaches rely heavily on parametric assumptions and are purely correlational. so, so the neural connectivity, obviously, if you can understand that well, has a lot of applications, uh, but it is clearly a very, very complex system. Um, before we get into the details, John, how have things progressed? Uh, if you sort of look uh, backward last 10, 15, 20 years, are we making progress in this area? I think it's interesting. It's one of those questions that it would depend a lot on who you ask. So. Maybe one of the places to start is there's a really classic set of studies by Astrid Prinz and Eve Martyr, and they took this somatogastric ganglion. It's a really simple circuit. It only has a few neurons. And this was now uh, not quite 20 years ago. They asked and they said, well, we know all the connections in this circuit, and what are the different ways that neural activity in this circuit can behave? And what they found out is it was an extremely complicated question. And so I think one of the things that neuroscientists have had to keep in mind is that structure and function are not the same. So what they found in this in this tiny bundle of neurons from the crab is that uh, depending on temperature, depending on how things were stimulated, the patterns of activity in that little tiny circuit were very, very different and even qualitatively weren't similar to each other. And so on the one hand, we have this counterexample that says, even if you tell me the structure of a circuit, 
it's not clear by that alone what function is. Yeah. We're running into the same thing in that we've had two, I would say, really big advances in the last few years. One is an amazing data set of human brain connectivity data. And there I don't mean that we actually know anatomical connectivity, but what you would get from an MRI scanner. So diffusion tensor imaging, which yeah. gives you some measures of connectivity. So really large samples in humans with the Human Connectome Project. The other is a really fascinating project that is only partway through, and this is this Fly EM project from Genelia, where they are going to trace all the connections in the fly brain. And that has been a massive undertaking, and they released a piece of it, I think, last year, and they're readying the rest of it for the, for the next couple of years. And those have both been big advances, but I think there's a very active debate in the field about what we're going to use the data for. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I think, where we come to part of where the genesis for this study was, is we're still sort of stuck in neuroscience with, in one of two cases, all that connectivity data we get is from, say, many, many flies, all of which are dead. <laughs> and the neural recording data we get is from living organisms, but we don't know exactly how things are wired up. And not being able to get both of those things, I think, has a lot of groups, not just ours, interested in ways that you can do causal experiments in the circuit. You can poke or prod something, manipulate the activity in the circuit, and learn something about how these structure and function relationships are tied together. Yeah, so it's, without knowing anything about it, John, you know, one, it's very interesting to, uh, to think about sort of the relationship between, as you say, the structure and function. Uh, I would think that the structure uh, could be sort of a random mutations, a uh, variety of other uh, processes that might be happening. And then ultimately you make use of the structure you are given to a function um, over specialization. Is that the way to think about the brain? Uh, is the structure evolving from the function or structure sort of give a way to function over time? Well, it, it's, it's a chicken and egg problem. And yeah. part of the reason it's that way is, on the one hand, we know that these circuits are extremely plastic. So, you know, going back to, you know, extremely classic work by Donald Hebb, if two neurons co-activate each other, their connections get stronger. And mm -hmm. we know that that's a substrate for all sorts of learning that happens in the brain. But the other thing that I would say we know is that the process of development very exquisitely patterns certain circuits. So mm -hmm. there seem to be levels, maybe, maybe the level of what people in the artificial neural networks world would call architecture, yeah. where the connectivity patterns really, you need to get them right. And maybe you don't need to get them right in terms of exactly which neuron is connected to exactly which other, but maybe which types of neurons get connected up and what sorts of motifs you see in those circuits. That's incredibly important. And so all sorts of genetic factors during development, probably what we would say is set you up architecturally for the kind of system that learns effectively. And then over the process of being an organism and moving around and learning to walk and these other things, you refine all those connections, but something needs to sort of put them in place. And then, you know, animals that do a good job of surviving have kinds of architectures that get preferentially reproduced in the next generation. Yeah, so in, as you know, the artificial neural networks, you know, one of the issues is uh, overtraining and the problem with generalization. And um, I, I would imagine organisms 
have the same sort of issues, right? You could you could overtrain based on what you see and do, and when things change, um, you have to relearn it. You have to um, you have to generalize it in some way. The the brain appears to be very good at it. Um, obviously, the artificial ones that we try to create are not necessarily very good. Although you know new mathematical techniques are improving them. Um, is there a, um, at least on the surface, is there a reason you can think why the brain is so good, good at that? There are a bunch. And I think you've, you've pinpointed something that is really important, which is that it is possible to overtrain. And there's a large psychology literature about how we, you know, unlearn associations, in particular things that are fearful associations are really traumatic or very hard to unlearn. Yeah. But generally the problem there is that we overgeneralize. You know, I'm scared of all loud sounds. Uh, I was shot and now I'm scared of all loud sounds. And that's a case of overgeneralization. Neural networks, as you pointed out, tend to have the opposite problem. I learned to recognize digits really, really, really well, but that doesn't tell me much about recognizing pictures of birds or dogs or something like that. And people have a lot of ideas about why this is true. Some of them are very neurobiological ideas like, well, maybe the problem is that in artificial networks, we don't have these mechanisms like uh, synaptic tagging. So maybe that's dopamine that says, okay, in this case, I should learn a new association, but in other cases, I should leave those connections alone. People, yeah. some people are working on saying, well, uh, there are a lot of different tasks in the world and it's not as if we spend our lives only doing one thing every moment and then we switch to a totally new task and maybe you need to interleave these. And so I don't know what the answer is going to be in that case. Part of the yeah. other issue is there are, there are other theories and, and I think these are more compelling that say, well, it's possible that the structure of cortex in, in all animals with a cortex is really there to help you generalize. That cortical circuits are really, really good at doing things more than just sort of learning motor associations. And really what you're building is a sort of inference engine. And yeah. people have various theories. Some people think it's, it's a sort of Bayesian inference engine and people talk about liquid state machines and all sorts of other things. And, and to be honest, I'm not an expert in those. Um, but I think it's a really rich area and people have all sorts of excitement, but yeah. it would be hard to claim we're at a point where there's a clear winner. Yeah, so um, it, it appears that there are regions in the brain that sort of help each other, right? So there is specialization going on, uh, but they're also sometimes overriding uh, each other uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, generally speaking, in artificial neural networks, we don't have those types of things going on. And so it seems to me that that interconnectivity uh, is really different, right, in the brain. Is that specific to the human brain, or do we see that across the entire spectrum? People look at these metrics of what you might call modularity. So I, I think a lot about Danny Bassett's work on this, where they've looked at multiple species. And I think in biological brains, the real trick is the following, and I'll go back to development. Yeah. In When we do these artificial networks, we decide what, what artificial neurons are wired to each other. And it's just as easy if say, um, I'm looking at layer one to layer two for any neuron in layer one to connect to any neuron in layer two. But in mm -hmm. a real biological brain, that connection has to be made somehow. And it's made over a very long distance and there's no one to guide it. So you have to set up 
a growth pattern in a neuron and you have to set up chemical gradients that the growth cone follows and all those things have to happen and you can kind of equate it to the idea that you've got to get halfway across your city but you have to do it blind only mm -hmm. by your sense of smell and when you start thinking about how difficult it is for neurons to traverse those large distances to make connections between areas you can see why it is that modularity is helpful in my local neighborhood, I can reach out and pretty much touch everyone that I might want to communicate with. But if I'm going to send an axon halfway across the brain, that needs to be very specifically controlled. And that's very expensive from a biochemical point of view. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for biological brains to limit those connections. I think mm -hmm. the other flip side, though, is that modularity stories about neuroscience are really compelling. So it's, it's very compelling that we have visual cortex where we know that inputs from the retina come and they make vision happen. And there are very strong associations that we have there. On the other hand, I was listening to a news program the other day and they're referencing the amygdala. And the amygdala comes up a lot in these cases because depending on who's doing the talking, it's either the emotional part of the brain or the fear part of the brain or the reward part of the brain. And in fact, the amygdala is involved in a lot of these. And so I think because we find modular stories, functional localization so compelling as people, and they give us such powerful intuitions for thinking about things, we yeah. often overestimate how true that is. Uh, in fact, colleagues of mine who spend a lot of time recording in different parts of cortex will tell you that in, say, a decision task, like a, a foraging task or a task where an animal is choosing between two options, and we're seeing this increasingly with these new recording technologies where you can record from all over the brain at once. These signals are everywhere. Reward, any rewarding event increases activity or decreases activity all over the brain. It's really ubiquitous and more widespread, I think, than, to be honest, we really have good conceptual categories for making sense of. And so I think it's both true. Certainly real brains are more modular than the artificial neural networks, but at the same time, the information is shared more broadly than I think neuroscientists maybe not have appreciated, but have talked about as much uh, in the last 20 years or so. Yeah, it seems uh, a little bit inefficient. <laughs> if, if, if you're trying to make a decision and you have the whole system sort of lighting up and, and, and you know, analogous way, we are doing similar things. You know, we have ensembles, we have voting, uh, to, to reach a decision by a variety of different machine learning techniques and deep learning techniques. So we, we're trying to, you know, sort of emulate, emulate that uh, to, to give variety. Uh, in some sense, as, as you mentioned, the noise that get created uh, in the developmental phase, because that process is not very prescriptive. Uh, it's, it's, I would imagine, very noisy process. And so that development process in itself, uh, by its design, actually going to create um, a lot of redundancy. Uh, I don't know if redundancy is the right word, but, uh, but a lot of complexity because of that, right? Yes, and I, I may get this wrong. I'm not a development specialist, but if I recall, the fraction is that you are left. So there's, there's an initial phase where neurons are absolutely profligate and make tremendous numbers of synaptic connections. Most of this, I think, original seminal work was done in the visual system. But then there's a, there's a phase where those connections get pruned back. And so the ones that are not useful, uh, the ones that are not 
frequently activated, get pruned back. And at the end of that process, you're left with about the third of the number you started with. And so that's another interesting potential contrast with the way we think about artificial neural networks. Artificial networks, we start them out, they kind of have randomized connections from one layer to the next. And you do a bunch of nipping and tucking and tweaking and all of these other things. And when you end up, you tend to have distributions of connection strengths between layers that are basically normally distributed. They're, they're a big bell curve. Whereas what we see in the brain, and this is partly because things are not at the same spatial location, but it's also partly the way things work, is it's a very heavily skewed distribution. <laughs> and that very heavily skewed distribution is reflective of the fact that a great deal of learning, at least in that early phase, is about what you take away. And the one other thing that I'll, I'll point out that this relates to is, is a line of research that's been going on in the artificial neural networks literature um, in the last couple of years on this lottery ticket hypothesis. And this is, this is not my work, this is the work of other people, but what a couple of guys essentially argued is that what you don't really need is extremely good weight initialization. Well, the argument was that you need the weights to be in the right ballpark of something, but you don't need many of them. Yeah. That if you start out close to the solution and you get a winning ticket, then training is extremely fast and it's extremely robust. But it's yeah. not just the identities of the connected neurons that are important. And so that doesn't seem to be what happens during development, but it does give rise to this idea that it's a small number of the connections that play really, really pivotal roles. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, yeah, it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. So again, in, in deep neural networks, there is a crude type of pruning uh, that seemed to work uh, from a generalization perspective. It's called dropout. And so if you, you know, randomly take 50% uh, of, the, of the neurons and, and essentially silence them uh, in one iteration uh, and then you know, do, do it randomly many, many times, it seems to generalize a lot faster. And so, so it seems like you know, that the pruning uh, is a very important function Ultimately, the problem to solve uh, in computer science, at least, uh, is really discarding information efficiently. Um, you know, that's the problem we are trying to solve in most cases. And discarding uh, information is, is very difficult to do. And uh, brain appears to be pretty good at it. Very Sorry, I think I might have lost you for a second. Um, so I was, you know, I was talking about the, uh, discarding information. So, you know, in, in computer science, a lot of the problems we try to solve end up with attempting to discard large amounts of information. And that's sort of a complex problem to solve, but the brain seems to do that pretty well, right? It does. And in some ways, you know, sense-making in the natural world requires that. And this is something that I am re I've really been obsessed with in the last couple of years and goes back to this paper that we started with, which is many of the analyses we do with our data as neuroscientists are really about throwing away nearly all the information. And, and something that I started thinking about probably about five years ago, and, and in the last couple of years I've been thinking about with my collaborator, Eva Nauman, is that we, we're collecting really, really large data sets. We are collecting by orders of magnitude more data than we were before. 
And yet the things that we do with those data, once we have them, um, in some cases, I, I have, you know, I have colleagues who, who do amazing things with it and they really do fit these complex models. But many of the things that bench scientists and wet labs do with them are very, very simple. And we started yeah. asking this question about, well, can't we do this while the data are coming in? And yeah. I think for a lot of my, for a lot of my experimental colleagues, they say, okay, well, why do you care about doing that? And, you know, part of me is a, is a, statistician and says, well, it's cool that we can. But the real answer <laughs> is, you know, one of the things we talk about is playing 20 questions. And so if you yeah. think about trying to do 20 questions, it's a search problem. And the way we normally do neuroscience is a terrible way to play 20 questions, which is I give you all 20 questions in advance. <laughs> you give me 20 answers back and then I have to guess. But right. for computer scientists, they know that if I ask one question and get an answer, I can eliminate a huge number of things and I don't waste questions. And I think they're, one of the things that we believe, I, I'm taking this in some ways as an article of faith, I think this is true, is that we can make the process of neuroscientific discovery more robust, more accurate, more productive if what we can start doing are running adaptive experiments. We run experiments that change as we collect data. And so the paper that we did is, is an algorithmic attempt to do this. Computer scientists think about this a lot. There are multiple types, uh, reinforcement learning and bandit problems and Bayesian optimization and all of these things that people are thinking about a lot in machine learning where we're doing sequential decision-making. And that's something that we've modeled empirically as neuroscientists. We're interested in how humans make sequential decisions, but our experimental design process is very slow sequential decision-making. I make a decision once a year or once every two years. And I think as these automated tools get more precise, we can get a lot more out of them if we think about analyzing our data and making many, many such decisions in real time. Are humans good? at sequential decision-making. Uh, let me give an example. And, and I, I guess we'll talk about more in your, your next paper. But, you know, in business uh, context, we have a lot of instances where we need to make sequential decisions. And uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of parameters. And we can solve these problems mathematically. But it has always been unclear if human decision-makers uh, can actually do that very well. Uh, do we have any any data on if humans are very good sequential decision makers? We we do, and some of it depends on whether by good, well, we may not be using the same notion of good that economists and game theorists use. So yeah. one of the interesting things is I, I did a lot of my postdoctoral training in decision making and decision neuroscience, and we were always looking at these optimal models. You know, are we maximizing utility? Are we, yeah. are we, you know, performing according to Nash equilibria? And what's so surprising is that, that motor neuroscientists, vision neuroscientists find that people have these beautifully optimal solutions. Vision in so many ways follows mm -hmm. ideal Bayesian observer models. People are extremely good at visual tasks. It is a huge amount of what we do as, as humans. And motion is another case where these sort of optimal um, optimal motor control, minimum jerk frameworks really make exquisite predictions that people do. And then we get to decision-making and you give people a 
task that requires them to do very basic math and they're just terrible. And, and <laughs> it, it's really fascinating because some of what you see is that human brains devote a lot of hardware to getting certain problems right, right? Babies spend their first year of life learning to walk. Learning to walk is so important and learning to see that that's basically what you do in your first year of life. And, and you listen. So you learn the structure of sounds around you and your parents' voices and, and that sort of thing. What we've only been doing comparatively recently is the sort of abstract reasoning that's needed to be an optimal decision maker if someone gives you a sheet of math problems. And so we, people in decision neuroscience, I think, can often envy people in the vision world because what we tend to see people doing in decision tasks are the sort of gergigerns or heuristics and biases. Every time we give people a task in the lab, um, this was true when I worked with non-human primates as well, um, they find a way to cheat. And the reality <laughs> is you can do very well in many of these laboratory tasks using very suboptimal strategies. And so people <laughs> satisfy, they, they do trade-offs with mental effort. And I am not sure what the status of it is, but mental effort seems to be costly to us. And we don't unless our lives or our you know, bank accounts depend on it, put maximal effort into every decision we make. And so sequential decision-making, in many, many ways, people can use very suboptimal decision strategies and still do okay. And that's what we tend to right. see. Yeah, and the next best solution may not be too far off in many cases. So as you say, the cognitive cost of optimization may be too high. Um, but, but it's interesting that, um, you know, things that we learn early on, like vision, like you mentioned, uh, it seems exceptionally good. Um, it seems very highly optimized, uh, but it's instinctual. Um, it, it is not something you're consciously doing, right? It, it's it's uh, in computer jargon, more like an operating system mm -hmm. rather than an application. Um, when we when we look at applications we put on much later, uh, those applications don't appear to be very highly optimized and probably for good reasons. That seems true. And some of this comes down to the fact that while I think we know a great deal about the areas that are involved in simple kinds of decision making that we can study in the lab, there are brain areas, many of them are prefrontal areas, but not all of them are that are involved in those kinds of decision processes, I think what we still lack is the sort of breakdown that if you talk to somebody in, in the vision world and you say, okay, vision is retina and then LGN and thalamus and V1 and V2 and V1 does edges and V2 does corners. And, you know, the, I know those are not entirely accurate characterizations, but there is a, there is a notion of a processing cascade that accords very yeah. well, as we've seen in the last few years, with, with sort of artificial networks and the features they extract. And we really, I don't think we've arrived at it. I, I don't want to be dismissive. I, I have colleagues who spent a lot of time working on this. And I think we, we yeah. certainly know a lot more than nothing. But for people who work on the anterior cingulate or the orbital frontal cortex, those are very, very live debates about mm. to what degree the information processing in areas like those differs and yeah. whether we have the right abstractions for thinking about the kinds of computations they do. And part of it is that those areas are involved in 
by some measure, a much wider range of behaviors, or at least a much wider range of behaviors that are interesting to scientists. Right, right. Yeah, so, so going back to the paper, John, so um, in, in terms of neural connectivity, what was the sort of the most interesting observations from the paper? Well, so I should, I should preface for people who haven't looked at it, you know, this is a theory paper. And what we're ultimately interested in doing, and, and this is work that I, I think is going to be ongoing in, in Eva's lab, is they work in these tiny larval zebrafish. These are, you know, three-day-old fish. And they are still very active in that process of development. And they're really interested in these behaviors that, you know, kind of, as you said, are, are very reflexive behaviors, but still very rich. Because in, the, in that tiny fish, you can actually image the whole brain as it's active. And so you can give the fish uh, a visual stimulus, which is not very exciting. It's a, it's a set of uh, bars that just looks like water running under the fish. And the fish will decide to swim and keeps itself stable in what it thinks the current is. And so uh, uh, Eva, my colleague, has a, has a model from a paper that she put out several years ago where she elucidates several types of neurons that are in the system based on work that she had done at Harvard and says, okay, well, we think the way the circuit works is this type of neuron is connected to this type of neuron is connected to a different type of neuron. And she presented a lot of evidence for this. Um, but what was not there in that paper that I think, you know, her lab is gearing up to do is to really test this. And the way you have to do that is by first identifying which neurons those are. They're different in every fish. And then saying, well, if we inactivate these neurons, if we stimulate these neurons, uh, can we show the kinds of expected disruption in the circuit? And so in that case, yeah. the nice part is there's a lot of access to that brain, not just at a very tiny local point, but across the whole brain, and really, I think, some realistic possibility of taking that circuit apart. And that's not true in other kinds of animals with much bigger brains. And so it's a really fascinating place to be working um, and for us to be collaborating with because we can start thinking about what a whole circuit looks like from sensory input to motor output. Yeah, and how many how many neurons are there approximately in a There zebrafish? are a couple hundred thousand, and that qualifies as a very couple small of... brain. <laughs> yeah, and so a couple of hundred thousand, and uh, supposing we are able to sort of map it out, and we are to a position that we can actually predict, given a stimulus, this is what we we should see in the brain if we can get there. Is that scalable? Is that extensible to to others? In, I'd like to say yes. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of betting my research program on saying yes. And I think there are, there are two ways that you can say yes there. One is, yes. you know, I, I'm trained as a physicist and physicists believe in, in patterns, right? So one is that it's not, that it's scalable. And I think this is the sense in which almost everyone in neuroscience wants to believe that what we're doing is scalable. We all spend our careers working in very specific systems on very specific processes with the idea that the lessons we learn will generalize to other things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's true. We've seen that. Um, people have spent their entire careers studying synaptic plasticity in a little animal that's very much not like us, but that knowledge is generalized to all sorts of other organisms, including ourselves, right? So one possibility mm -hmm. is that we really learn something about, uh, in the case of the zebrafish, how the brain organizes these really simple behaviors and that kind of organization 
and the lessons we draw from it is applicable to uh, rodents or or primates um, or even you know us as, as particular kinds of primates. The second is, and this is sort of what the paper is about, is that some of these tools, um, in this case, we're thinking about holographic photostimulation. So the idea is that we have a laser and the laser allows us, along with some genetic tools, to excite only specific sets of neurons. So this is kind of random access right to the brain. I want neurons 5, 15, and 74, and I can stimulate only those. So that technology is, has been developed and is still being refined, but is really amazing. And in that case, we really, I think, do have to start thinking about algorithms because the number of possibilities is immense. Practically, what people are doing in experiments right now is they say, I want to excite all of the cells that have a certain gene. They're a certain kind of cell. They're excitatory or inhibitory, or I want to excite all the connections that come from this other region. And those, those are really powerful experiments. But once we start thinking about addressing individual cells, uh, you simply can't get it done if you don't think intelligently about how to select the ensembles you're going to stimulate. And so that's something that we're really interested in. My postdoc, um, Andrelis and I wrote this paper, really interested in thinking about how you take approaches like this, which you can really validate in small circuits and think about, okay, well, could we even scale this up to a mouse brain? And, and by a mouse brain, I mean a very small portion of that brain. And I think that'll take a lot of work, but it's something we're really excited about pushing. Yeah, and it's really exciting. And if it, if it is reducible to heuristics uh, I, I, at some level, then you know it even has therapeutic um, uh, possibilities, right? Uh, because there's sort of redundancy there. And if you say, you know, you, you have a set of heuristics that are fairly robust, if there is some sort of a fault or break in the circuit, you can mend that, um, uh, mend that in such a way that uh, the function is not lost. That's the hope, and and there there's a whole there's a whole not just industry but you know a whole research enterprise around the idea of you know neurotherapeutics, brain stimulation devices, and some of those are implanted for people who have very serious illnesses, and some of those are are external. Uh, like TMS, but certainly for the implantable devices, we're now reaching the generation of devices that involve closing the loop on feedback. So the devices are recording signals from the brain as they are stimulating, and they are looking to modify stimulation accordingly. And those are, I believe, currently still just investigative devices, but but they're, I think, pretty close to market, if I'm not misunderstood. Um, and that, I think, also is something that we're interested in algorithmically. Uh, how do you make the most out right. of a device like that? And I know many people are working on that sort of thing, but it's a case where as m those devices have more electrodes and more possible parameter settings, and they're really taking data into account, it's not just a matter of making the hardware functional anymore. It's a matter of, can you make the life easier of the neurologist who's responsible for programming that device? Can the devices tune themselves so that, say, patients with Parkinson's disease don't have to go visit the doctor once every three months to get their settings adjusted so that they can control their symptoms? Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, so, John, we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about your other paper, Naturalistic Decision-Making. All right, thanks. Sure.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, John. We were talking about um, the neural connectivity in the brain, and um, and we are slowly but surely getting closer, perhaps, uh, to understand how these complex circuits um, talk to each other and how they organize uh, as they develop. You have another paper entitled "Naturalistic Decision Making: Continuous Open Open World and Recursive." Uh, you say real-world decisions take place over time in dynamic contexts and with frequently shifting choice sets. In contrast, most studies of decision-making have focused on single abstracted choices among small numbers of discrete options. Uh, here you say we advocate for a shift in emphasis to what we call continuous decisions, which better capture the complexity of decision-making in the wild. Um, and so... So, so what do you mean by continuous decision making, John? That's a great that's a great question. I think the easiest thing to think about is to start with what we normally study as a decision in the lab. So the classic decision, and we give this in various forms, but it's sort of like saying, do you want apples or oranges? Would you rather have two apples or one orange? And that's called a two alternative force choice. Mm-hmm. And this is a classic tool of economists and people who study behavioral decision-making and has really been a big emphasis for people who do neuroscience is we wanna know how do people trade off one kind of good against another when they have to pick one. On the other hand, the other sort of paradigm for decision-making and this is something that I I worked a lot on um, during my postdoc and a lot of other people have taken up from a lot of different angles the other kind of decision that you can really think about is a foraging decision. And so in a foraging decision, an animal is running around and maybe is going from tree to tree and there are different kinds of fruit. But the important thing about that foraging decision is I make a decision to continue eating and maybe digging in the place that I am or go and find something else. Yeah. And one of the really important parts of that decision is that my options are not all available to me at once. It takes time and investment to get from one to the next. There's uncertainty about it. And so it may be possible that I am out and maybe I'm I'm a wolf and I'm hunting and I'm confronted by two rabbits at the same time going opposite directions. Yeah. But most likely what I have to do is I see one rabbit and I have to make a decision to pursue that or to keep hunting for something else. And so foraging decisions have a lot of that character. And, And so foraging decisions have been increasingly prevalent in the literature. There's been a real efflorescence of people in neuroscience looking at natural behaviors mm-hmm. in the last decade, really. And I, I'm very excited about this because it really has two big advantages. One is we're actually studying the thing we want to study, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds sounds small, but but the reality is we want to understand the decisions that humans make that are complex and affect our real lives. That's always our goal. Yeah, And yet, we need often these simplified tasks so we can get a foothold. So we understand them mathematically. They're simple enough to analyze the brain data. 
But the other reason for being really excited about these tasks is I think somewhat paradoxically, if you study a decision in an animal, say a non-human animal, that it has evolved to do very, very well, mm. it is often the case that the brain activity when you're studying that decision and the behavior when you're studying that decision make a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, so the bit that we're adding in this continuous decisions paper, and this is work that has been coming out of my co-author, Ben Hayden, um, you, uh, who's the first author, uh, work they've done together, some in collaboration with us and some in collaboration with other people, um, some work that I've done in collaboration with Michael Platt and Scott Hutel, is really beginning to look at the combination of decision and movement. So you asked, and I am finally getting back to this, about what is a continuous decision. There's a great deal of difference yeah. in deciding whether you're going to buy apples or oranges at the store versus figuring out how you're going to return a serve on the fly in a game of tennis. Right, right. There's a decision that's involved there, but that decision is involves a very tight interplay of where your body is, um, of what your priorities and your goals are. You've got to move while you're doing it. And yes, there's added complexity there, but it's maybe not complexity we can get rid of. And and it's going to affect a series of future decisions too, right? So it's not one decision, but it's a sort of an evolving, evolved decision. Um, so we have, you know, uh, not quite quite continuous, but we often have decisions that are sequential uh, and parallel. And we, you know, we use simulation and dynamic programming, optimum control type problems uh, to solve them. Um, but uh, th these problems are a little bit, a little bit uh, even more complex than that, right? A, an entity is making sort of decisions uh, continuously. And all those decisions are interrelated. And so it really has to take into account what the future possibilities are when you make the current decision. That's true. And part of what makes that possible is that something you brought up earlier, which is that many of those decisions are unconscious. So I am generally not worried if I'm playing a sport about staying upright. I have a postural control system that takes care of much of that for me we know from research is constantly making predictions about where my body is likely to be in the next millisecond. So one of the fascinating things about the motor system when you're moving very fast is there's not actually enough time for your body to give your central nervous system feedback before it has to send out the next motor command. Right. So in an engineering sense, much of the time when you're moving fast, you're moving open loop. Mm -hmm. You are getting information back, but you have to send the motor command before. So. Some of it goes back to those questions of modularity that you are maybe giving high level direction to these systems, but then those subsystems are taking care of some things on their own. And that's one of the issues that we bring up in the paper for something that's a little bit more banal in some ways, but, but also really fascinating is that we do many, many sequential tasks. So making a sandwich where we're effectively on autopilot. I, I'm sort of conscious of choosing at a high level, okay, I'm gonna make the sandwich and maybe I think about individual steps. Yeah. But it's also fairly easy in that process to be distracted and to begin doing some other task without even realizing it. So people have thought about this sort of hierarchy of goals in terms of reinforcement learning. That's, that's a very, turns out, difficult area to work in, but people have worked a lot on it. 
but humans seem to be able to do this naturally. And one of the examples we bring up in the paper is it is rare, even though it's easy to model mathematically and it's often how we do it, for me to think, well, I'm walking down the street outside my house. And so I need to take a step. Now I need to take another step. Now I need to take another step. We're not constantly engaging that volitional process of deciding with every step we take. We're often setting a high level goal and I'm kind of walking and that's all automatic. And we're just sort of checking in periodically. Mm. And that's something that has been lost, I think, in some of at least our mathematical modeling of decision-making and, and some of the way we design laboratory tasks, yeah. which is that we're often engaged through time and we sort of commit to a pattern of activity for some amount of time and then adjust. And the reason in some ways we've not done this is not that people aren't interested in this or aware of it, but it presents a lot of mathematical challenges. And I think our tools are better now than they've ever been to start tackling some of those, which is why we sort of argue in the paper that this idea is is ripe. Right. Yeah, that that's really interesting, John. So this idea of modularity. So suppose I have a problem and I have, let's say, half a dozen subsystems. And as you say, we take the high level goal and parse parse out that high level goal and give sub goals to the subsystems. Um, at the highest level, I can sort of simplify the whole problem. So, you know, subset, su subsystem one, I can maybe just monitor one parameter coming out of that uh, to determine if that subsystem is doing what I intended it to do. I don't have to get into the details of that, right? So right. Uh, I would imagine, you know, the, the modern aircrafts are really artificially intelligent machines I think there's a lot of modularity uh, in those uh, designs too. I, I haven't really kept touch with it. Um, but I think we are you know, increasingly designing industrial applications in this fashion too. And one of the things that I find really fascinating about though, when we think about that in the case of the brain is, to me at least, it's still unclear how modular those systems are because they're so strongly connected reciprocally. Hmm. And that may be that that's the communication process we're seeing. So speaking in a way, I'm not sure I could make rigorous. Let's say two areas are, are connected and they're, they're passing information back and forth. And maybe the, the computation, if you will, is taking place in one and the monitoring is taking place in the other. One, I'm not sure how much we have the right abstractions for hmm. thinking about that. Um, but two, it is possible that those areas are, you know, engaging in a lot of mutual feedback with each other. Right. And so this is something where in, in the neuroscientific sense, I feel like we have a long way to go. Part of it is that that's also fascinating, fascinating problem to think about is that in all of these design computing systems that we think about, most of them, even the very low latency applications like avionics, they're still all on the same clock. Right. So you have a microprocessor and that sets the clock for the system. And then everybody is on the same clock and everybody's communicating in some ways synchronously. You, you may have an asynchronous system and I think that's an additional complexity, but the brain really has no fundamental clock that everyone has to agree to. <laughs> so somehow you need to be passing this information, but it doesn't have the sort of strict hierarchical setup 
that there's a, there's a little homunculus that has all the information and makes the decision. Hmm. And how you bootstrap a system like that to work effectively is still a really deep and interesting theoretical problem. Yeah, so, you know, you have done a lot of work in this area. You know, I sometimes feel like uh, the way that engineering and computer science and artificial intelligence have gone is, is, is a direction that is potentially not uh, going to get us anywhere close to the brain. You know, it, it, might, it might allow us to solve some complex problems. And I think we are going to hit uh, up uh, a threshold in terms of how com complex a problem we could solve. Uh, I'm just making hypothesis, John. I want to get your impression on this. My hypothesis is that the, the design path that we are on is, is different from how the brain is working. And so any attempt at, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, really kind of understanding brain computationally is going to be difficult, I think, uh, from, from the path that we are currently on. What do you think about that? Well, so let me let me clarify, because I think there are a couple of questions there. So one is whether the design path that we're on is going to help us understand the brain. And the other is whether the design path that we're on is going to hit a wall in terms of the engineering problems we want to solve. Yeah. So let me kind of take the first one. And, and I think that's true. So there are definitely skeptics um, and, and some of them have offices next to me. <laughs> who, um, who really would say that that the computational metaphors we're using are not the right metaphors. And there are people who point out, rightly so, that in the age of Descartes, um, it was fluid dynamics metaphors. And in the age of, in the early age of electronic circuits, it was, it was circuit metaphors. And that neuroscience has always sort of picked up whatever you know, intellectual bucket was at hand and tried to pour our data into it. And I think it's, at some levels, it's hard to argue with that. Mm. So I think, I think we're always liable to that. The place where we would like to get to, I believe, is to say that we've identified some, some processes that the brain uses that seem to be replicated in multiple areas of the brain across multiple species that we really think there are lessons we can pull from this that mm. are patterns. That are, that are biological patterns. And I think artificial neural networks are a good example of something where we took a few ideas. We, I mean, this was before my time, but people took a few key ideas and said, if this were a basis for computing, hmm. what could it do? And I think what we've learned in the last 15 years is an amazing amount that people saw perhaps in the 90s, but did not have the computing power of the data to have come to fruition. Yeah. Now, there's a debate in, in the machine learning world that goes around every few years and is sort of fun to have about, has machine learning really learned everything it needs from neuroscience, right? <laughs> Does, is it really the right way to think about artificial neural networks to say, how do we make them more like real neural networks? Because the counterpoint always is to say, oh, well, you know, babies' brains are really good at learning language and they're really good at learning motor control. And the rejoinder to that always is, well, you know, millions of years of evolution was necessary to make that fast learning happen. And maybe we would like to solve these problems without millions of years of iteration. 
So I think, I think people have a good point on both sides. And like a lot of debates in science, it will only be resolved by someone finding a good solution. And we'll, we'll yeah. see. I, I don't have a great guess either. Some of what you were talking about, though, was just design for problems that engineers care about, regardless of neuroscience. Right. Some of it is the fact that, and, and I think it's really fascinating, people that are working on this. In my lab, we mostly use machine learning methods to answer scientific questions. So the classic machine learning methods are to solve engineering problems. They're regression, classification, prediction. Yeah. And scientific problems are of a very different type. They're usually inference problems. We have hmm. a set of data and we would like to know what they mean. We're not always interested in predicting. At one level, we want to predict what happens in the next experiment, but we're interested in the conceptual knowledge we can gain. And I think there's, I can, there's some almost, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, mostly, uh, almost like uh, un unsupervised machine learning, pattern finding. Yes, and almost all oh, of the right. machine learning we do in my lab is unsupervised for this reason. It's, it's a knowledge discovery kind of problem. And yeah. you can do that with classification studies, but it always felt to me a little bit strained to try to say, well, we're going to learn about this system by trying to predict something that we really don't care about. That kind of approach, the scientific problem, scientific machine learning does have a difficulty in that if you are an engineer and you train a neural network to perform a task, you can benchmark it, you know when you're done. The models that we use and the models that we build need to be models that can be run by other labs. We have a reproducibility crisis in science and <laughs> right. let's just say reproducibility is not the strong suit of machine learning research right now. And <laughs> that's a problem, you know, as much as hypothesis testing and statistics, null hypothesis significance testing is, you know, getting a bad rap and is not my favorite either. Um, it does tell people something and allows them to draw rigorous conclusions about their data. And that is not a framework that we can really use with typical machine learning methods. You know, there's no, there's no p-value for deep learning, nor is there a really well-calibrated Bayesian credible interval, if that's what you want to do. And so those are real challenges that are kind of increasingly important in machine learning. But the other ones, and I think this is where it comes back to engineering, are people who are really interested in these systems for safety. Right. So it, it's really very, very hard right now to think about putting a neural network of any kind, no matter how well it performs, in a safety critical application. So in an FDA regulated device or in a, you know, a, a jet from Boeing or Lockheed, because yeah. we don't have great ways of ensuring that they won't say something catastrophic. And so the interpretability right. and the safety issues, I think, you know, as someone who's, who's more of a scientist than an engineer, to me are really fascinating because the neural networks, the structure of the problem is so tightly coupled to the hardware and so tightly coupled with what we train them to do that they still lack some of the guarantees that we have yeah. with the methods we're used to. And I think those are challenges that I'm just now seeing people start to address. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the beauty of the brain is that it can solve problems it hasn't seen yet. And, you know, I, I tend to argue that that is really the only intelligence we can define. Everything else is sort of mathematics, statistics, um, 
it's not necessarily intelligence. So I, I think, you know, we throw out this term artificial intelligence sometimes a bit too casually, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we can, we can definitely build models uh, that can make predictions, uh, but that's not necessarily intelligence. And so the, the question remains to be um, whether there's something, you know, really special about the way that the, the human brain is working uh, which which seems to be the case uh, in the absence of any other data. But I think your approach in the zebra fish uh, experiment that you talked about, uh, if I understand that correctly, John, correct me if I'm wrong, um, a couple of hundred thousand neurons, if we can find patterns in the firing behavior of that, of those neurons, that is going to give us potentially some reducible reducible heuristics that will have some value uh, for us, not for modeling, but to potentially understand how the brain actually works. That's the hope. And I think that's the hope in, in some way of everybody who does these experiments and the hope of everyone who works on them theoretically is that we really do have, and I think this is the other thing that happens when we talk about neuroscience and where things are is there's so little we understand, and yet there are beautiful examples of systems that are there. Maybe they're simple, but we really do feel like we've learned something important. And so there, there's a rich vein of research from the 80s on control of eye movements. And yeah. it reads like something out of an engineering textbook and is really elegant. Now, that's mostly circuits that don't go through the cortex. Um, that took, mm. you know, decades of research. And, and I think when people look at, or when, at least I think about what success looks like, I look at some of these papers and everyone has their own favorites and you say, oh, if I could find something like that, you know, that's what an answer looks like. And, and so I think people are optimistic about that, but it's very hard to tell where the breakthrough is going to be. Right. Yeah, keeps it interesting. Uh, so in conclusion, John, could you speculate, based, uh, you know, looking forward five, 10 years, um, where do you think we will be on these questions? Uh, questions are, will we get a better understanding of how the brain works? Will we see more practical applications um, emanating from that understanding in, in physical systems? Um, where do you think we will be in, in five to 10 years time? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an optimist. So my, my hope on the practical side is that in 10 years, the neural stimulation devices that we're implanting are really capable of controlling the way the network works in a way that we can start really giving relief to some people who are suffering from very severe depression, um, from schizophrenia, from OCD. I, it's proven really challenging and I don't work in this space, but I have colleagues who do to make these devices into practical treatments for these disorders. But I, I remain really excited about that. I think at a scientific level, you know, what I want to see come out of my work is I want us to be at the point where we can run maybe not fully automated, but semi-automated experiments where we can really start to pick apart functions of yeah. medium and large scale circuits. And, and what I can hand you as an experimentalist um, is half an hour, an hour into your study, I could say, here's a model of what the system is doing. Now you mm -hmm. refine your experiment because I think we can do that. And so I, I'm, 
really optimistic about the prospect of building sort of flexible models that are starting points. I, I would, you know, I came from physics. I would love to see neuroscience get to the point where it could be more theory driven than it is. And, yeah. and I think the way we get there is by trying a lot of ideas and building a lot of models. And so that's my hope is that we are a discipline that has a, a tighter integration between the theorists and the experimentalists because we've been moving that way, but we're not where I hope we'll be in 10 years. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting field. Um, so th thanks, John, for spending time with me and uh, good luck with this research. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.